You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode three of the Trial Tales Podcast. Today we're getting into the nitty gritty of excavation. People love hearing about the variety of digs we archaeologists get to go on. But the thing to keep in mind is that in the grand scheme of things, we don't get to do a ton of excavating. In the academic world, there are summer field schools. In the cultural resource management world, CRM, excavation is usually considered a last resort, since it is an extremely expensive thing to do. I usually don't get to do many excavation projects. I mostly survey. But when I do get to excavate, it is so much fun. So, what is archaeological excavation? I asked a couple of my colleagues that question. In layman's terms, how would you describe it other than just digging? <laughs> That's pretty layman. Yeah. <laughs> a, little digging le- squares. a little less layman. <laughs> Organized digging? <laughs> the methodical removal of soils and the cataloging of their contents. Why? Because you get paid. (laughs) (laughs) Science, dude. Science. Excavation is kind of really where the hardcore science of archaeology comes into play. You're doing a lot of things from not just digging, but it's the samples that you're taking. It's the it's the way that you're excavating. It's the data you're recording along the way. It's the um, it's the last it's also, in a, from a CRM standpoint, the last time somebody's ever going to see any of that. I mean, any excavation is inherently destructive, and nobody's ever going to see that stuff again in its natural setting, except for you. But for CRM, it's that much more poignant, because even if you were to leave something in place, it's still probably going to be destroyed by some sort of development, and because that's why you're there. So, yeah, excavation is sort of the uh, the last chance for the archaeological setting or the cultural setting to really express itself. What do you think is the difference between academic excavation and CRM excavation? So I would say the major difference between academic and CRM excavation is academic excavation tends to be, because of the nature of the excavation, it's being done by somebody who has either worked on that project for 20 years or a grad student that's never worked on any project ever. So a lot of times, I feel like academic excavations are designed from the ground up because they've they've never done this or they're not working within an, an existing framework. So it's kind of like the hit and miss sort of Wild West, and they're they're answering very specific research questions for their thesis, dissertation, or ongoing project. Whereas CRM excavation, while we do have research questions that we're trying to answer based on that, we're using existing methodology that's been tried and tested either with your company or with the whole region or wherever you're working whatever agency you're working for. And that's more, that's more methodical and scientific. I feel like, because we're, we're, we're practiced at it and it's what we do. It's not the kind of thing we're just going to do for three weeks over the summer and then, you know, teach classes for the rest of our lives. I went to a rigorous academic field school and have since been part of several large scale CRM excavations. Although the pace and research objectives may differ, I do think the overarching goal is the same, to recover as much information as possible in order to reconstruct the when, how, and why people lived in that particular location. 
Most archaeologists have to go to a field school at some point early on in their studies or career in order to learn how to properly excavate. A field school can help a student narrow down where and what culture they would like to focus on. There are academic field schools and more CRM-oriented field schools. There are field schools in Egypt and some that are not far from your own backyard. I asked some of my colleagues about their field school experience. My first field school or my field school experience was really late in undergrad. It was the the winter of my senior year. And so like over Christmas um, and New Year's, which is sort of an odd time to be doing a field school, except I was doing a field school in the Caribbean um, on the island of Barbuda, which was a crazy experience to have your first field experience because it was all these college students down um, on this on this really uh, small population island doing salvage ex- uh, excavation on a beach. Right there was this Saladoid period site, so this is a really early um, colonial. Uh, sort of colonization of this island, which Barbuda is an interesting island. So you've got you've got the main um, sort of chain of islands, and a lot of them are volcanic. But Barbuda is this limestone shelf way out in the Atlantic, and it's so low in elevation above sea level that you can't see it from far away. Hmm. So it's one of these cool places that um, that past people found even though you couldn't see it. Um, Not as extreme as what happened in the South Pacific by any means, but still pretty impressive. Anyway, so we were excavating this this site that was eroding out of a dune on this beach. Um, And I didn't realize till later that even though it it was an absolutely fantastic learning experience, it really didn't prepare me for for real excavation. In the amount of work that it is, I was excavating in a bathing suit most of the time. Um, I'm serious. I'm serious. And so, so I got, so I came out here as an intern. You know, I my field experience since that point was doing survey work and re-recording of large sites um, down here in the Southwest. But it, as I was moving through graduate school, it became very um, obvious that I was going to undermine any credibility that I might have, not that I have any, but any credibility that I might have if I don't get some more excavation experience under my belt. So I became a a Crow Canyon field intern. I applied for the field internship and and got a position as an intern. And we were working on a Basket Maker 3 um, site down here in southwestern Colorado. And and I realized that not all archaeology was as easy as digging through sand on a beach. <laughs> um, and instead, we were digging, you know, this these Beth Maker three pit houses that were um, that were, you know, down in Caliche. It, it was extremely difficult. It was also extremely rewarding and fun. And one of the things that made it so rewarding was the experience of instead of doing sort of quick archaeology, when we were down in Barbuda, we had, you know, three weeks and and we had to get this site done. And I remember a couple of the graduate student teaching assistants who were part of that trip who at one point, you know, us undergraduates were just so slow and so 
bad at what we were doing that they they just sort of um, put us on this other site and then they they really had to finish out the units at the at one of the principal sites that we were working in. As an intern and at Crow Canyon, we were working with participants and actually teaching, um, you know, school children and adult participants how to excavate and how to how to understand the archaeological record through excavation and understand the past and interpret the past through excavation. So it was a lot slower, but um, but I felt like like it was in it was enhanced by that um, that that give and take mm-hmm. with public participants. They would ask questions that, as an archaeologist, I wasn't really you know thinking about, like uh, wh- how would this potsherd uh, appear in the fill of a uh, of a basket maker pit house and not on why wasn't it on the floor why would it be in the fill and then i'd have to talk them through you know how these pit houses might have been used as middens by later people and so on and so forth and and just just the the repetition of explain of answering those questions that are so fundamental that we sort of forget about them often, but the repetition of answering those week in and week out really made them sink in and made me have a a, a, a sort of better respect for some of those site formation processes and for um, the sort of beautiful. Uh, I I don't know how to explain it, but the the. The beauty of excavation as a process and as a way of knowing and interpreting the past. It's crazy to think I went to field school almost 10 years ago. It was my first big excavation and I really had absolutely no idea what to expect. Um, It was this huge temple complex in Cyprus. Uh, There was every kind of occupation you could possibly imagine. Greek, Roman, Egyptian, medieval, and so on. I mean, it seemed like everybody wanted to go to this one area of Cyprus. Uh, So we were finding terracotta Roman lamps to Ptolemaic-style statues. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. And with such a rich background, it shouldn't be that surprising that the site had been badly looted um, for a really long time. Which meant we had to get through tons of looters' pits, where everything is just this big jumble of stuff, in order to get to the undisturbed cultural level with all the really amazing artifacts and all these different aspects of the temple, the, the altars, the pillars, the flooring, just all that amazing stuff where you know what was happening. Um, so we're digging away with our tiny trowels, just trying to get past these looters' pits. It was day in, day out. It's the same thing. We're all hoping to just get past these stupid pits. And it was like 110 degrees, um, full sun, and being the young, dumb college student that I was, um, I was in a tank top and shorts. Um, so there I was, digging away with my trowel, and all of a sudden, I just hit something really hard. Um, I brush away the dirt, and there staring up at me is the face of a statue. Um, And it's of a Roman-style temple boy. This little, like, sweet little face. Um, And that meant I finally hit the cultural layer. And with quite a bang, it was this beautiful statue head. And it was the first major artifact I've ever found. And there it was. Um, You could still see the traces of paint on the marble, like a little bit of paint on the lips and on the eyes. And 
I mean, up until that point, I mean, everything was still in these looters pits. And then this beautiful statue head. And throughout the, the rest of the field school, um, we all, everyone found amazing artifacts. Uh, but I'll never forget uncovering that little bit of statuary. Field school I did it in Italy um, and it was great I was a, I mean some of those people that I met on the field school they're still good friends like who I'd consider good friends today they were it was it was amazing it was a hilltop site in Umbria um, pretty small I think there wasn't that many of us out there but it, we had to hike up that hill every day and at the beginning of the project we we're all like oh yeah we'll be running this by the end of the day you know we were hiking up every morning six days a week with our field gear like and trowels like we'd have boxes of trowels and stuff like that because we weren't really leaving that I think we left maybe the screens or something on top of the mountain but most of the stuff we were trucking up and down each day and we thought that that we would be running that thing by the end of the project. And no, it was last day, it was still just as hard trekking up that hill as it was the first day. And it was like, what? But I remember making, like, we would have Nutella and peanut butter sandwiches for lunch and and stuff like that. We stayed, some of us stayed in a farmhouse, and that was where we had dinner every night. And that was just the best experience. Like, I remember going and... We would go explore in the evenings or uh, play a briscola, um, like a card game. It was briscola, an Italian card game, and it, it was a lot of fun. It was very small, so it wasn't like a well-known site. You know, it's just this tiny little hilltop site in close to a village. We went through Roman ruin, like Roman. There was at least a Roman layer of stuff, and then I think it was ultimately an Etruscan site and I'm not sure if it was ever fully established exactly what it was if it was some kind of a little like habitation I it could have been I mean there was a tiny little section of flooring that we could see like cacio pesto flooring I, I might be getting my words I mean this was like a decade or so ago so I might be forgetting the terminology but there was a tiny little section of floor that we could see and there was a lot of pottery and Stuff like that. We did find a few Etruscan, like at least a couple Roman coins and at least one Etruscan coin. And there was also a cistern that had been filled in. Um, so there was some kind of event that happened where they decided to fill in this cistern. It was full of tile and all sorts of, in like, there's some interesting things. Like, I think a lot of animal bone and tiles, like terracotta tiles and stuff like that. And then there was also a burn layer. So I think the Roman remains like Roman pottery and all that was found above this burn layer and then the Etruscan stuff was below it from what I remember but I was so new then you know that's like my first real experience in archaeology that I, I you know it's really hard for me to have a totally clear picture of what was going on because when you're in field school you really don't know anything, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't, you know, you really have to get out there and work a lot before you really start to get a good picture as to what all goes on during excavations and, and what you're really trying to get as far as information goes and, and things like that. So we'll be right back after a quick break. Make 
no apology All the study of archaeology But we don't do dinosaurs Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries. Hoax or fact? Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny bitty blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Welcome back. After field school, you're technically ready to set off on any kind of excavation. Here are some stories showing the wide variety of excavations an archaeologist can end up on. Excavating on a on a uh, post-classic site in Belize, post-classic Maya, I was excavating a uh, a block of uh, seeded flex burials. The bottom of one of the the burial excavation pits. Thank you. The bottom of one of the burial pits was a uh, an almost perfectly intact tripod vessel, and underneath the tripod vessel was a cache of catfish spines. And then underneath that was the central column, I believe it's called a columnella, of a conch shell that was carved into a pendant with a bird head on one end of it. And that was pretty cool. So we were working doing, I guess technically it was testing on sites and we were working on one it was this huge lithic scatter there was obsidian everywhere it was like seven miles long, it was a huge site so we were up there and we were in the remote camp which is different than the man camp we had a, a, a mess tent where we all had our meals there was a shower trailer and then we all had uh, each group. There was an Alpine group, and then there was other companies there. We each had our own little trailer to sleep in, which were uninsulated with prison bunk beds. At least they gave us, the company that was running it gave us sleeping bags. And it was February in uh, the eastern side of Oregon. So cold. Oh, single digits. It was awesome. And then we were testing, and everything was either straight up frozen or frozen mud that slowly thawed out as you're trying to push it through screen. So the routine was get up in the morning, freezing cold, go to the mess tent, have whatever hot breakfast that they offered, and then we'd wait around for the the bus that they have to take us to the right-of-way, which was an old immigration bus. So we get on there, ride to the right-of-way, get off there, wait around, and then they would pick us up in a Hogland, which was a tracked military vehicle from Sweden. Even had, like, holes in the top where you could sit and look out. And then we would ride along the right-of-way in that until we got to where we were excavating at that particular time. So then we would spend 
eight, nine, ten hours. Snowing, raining, whatever. Out there, we'd have a little packed lunch that they would give us at the beginning of the day. So doing excavating, picking out tiny pieces of flakes because they wanted everything. Although it was pretty cool because there was about three different types of obsidian on the site. You had the regular black stuff. You had mahogany obsidian, which only really showed up as points. There were no flakes of that. And then they would have like a rainbow kind of, which is also which was pretty rare. So you do that, and then you get back in the hogland, you ride back to camp, you have dinner, and then basically you drink all night, and then go to bed in your sleep, their, uh, cold trailer and do it all the next day. Yeah, it was an interesting experience, that is for sure. But I guess when I start to really think back to, you know, in my whole career and some of the things, I honestly, I go right back to my second project ever, which was an excavation in downtown Miami, Florida. And we were working in what we called the well, which was uh, a historic well dug by the Spanish, but it was also like a natural spring right near the Miami River and the intercoastal waterway. And the water would, the salty water and the brackish water from the river would, would soak in through the limestone and come up as fresh water right there, just a few hundred feet from the river. So it was a natural place for people to come get water. But for Native Americans going back 10,000 years, it was also a place for them to bury their dead. And we had these round limestone solution holes that were either naturally created um, by water action or they were actually dug out with shells like conch shells and things like that. Um, and we would just find piles of human remains because they would just gather them up and then dump them into these solution holes. And we would find those and. It was the only project I've ever worked on where our two artifact bags for every level that we dug were labeled human and non-human because it was all bone. <laughs> so it was because um, we would find uh, manatee bone, uh, turtle bone, like turtle shell, and, uh, and a number of other species as well. Um, manatee and turtle were the two big ones. And then human bone. And it was just a, a real trial, trial by fire on my osteological knowledge. And it was, uh, like I said, my second project ever. And I think because of that and the fact that it lasted like six months is why it really ranks high on my list and, and sticks in my head all the time when I talk to people about archaeology. The interesting thing about that was, um, you know, on the other side of the Miami River, on the south side, is where they found before we got there was the Miami Circle. And that's been written about in a few publications, and you can find that online because there's, I think there's a... I think it's been preserved as the Miami Circle now, so they're, they're doing some stuff with it. But it's basically a circular formation of these limestone solution holes that, that were actually created for purpose. And then they put these posts in there and create these level platforms. And the, the thinking is, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is ethnographic information on this or if this is just like conjecture, but the thinking is that the, the Native Americans would take their dead, place them on these open air platforms and just let nature take its course, whether animals got to them or they just desiccated naturally and, and you know, all the material, the, the squishy material, um, you know, just went away. And then they'd be left with bones. And at some point later on, they would take these bones, gather them up, float across the river to where we were, and then dump them into these holes. Using ceremony, too, because the turtle shell we found, we think, was upturned turtle shell. And then, um, you know, fires and things burned in those, like around a circle at the top of the, the top of the well. So... It was a really interesting uh, experience being on that. That's it for this episode. On the next episode. But yeah, it was a huge project. It was in the 
4,600 bodies were exhumed in advance of a parking parking garage along the Jersey Turnpike for the train. I have found like a lot of times people who are archaeologists act like working with the burials and human remains and whatnot is a like some kind of like blue ribbon. No, it's like, first of all, it's not, I don't like that they have to be disturbed to begin with. We're going to discuss excavating human remains in the field, working with remains in the lab, and the importance of treating every individual recovered with respect. Special thanks to Aaron, Sarah, Jackie, Seth, Chris, Carrie, and Kyle, who contributed their time and stories to the podcast. Check us out on Facebook to learn more about the podcast and let us know what kind of stories you'd like to hear. Also, if you're an archaeologist and would like to contribute a tale or two, send a message. Until next time. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.